What's up everyone? Good morning and once again welcome to our online Water's Edge worship experience. Thank you so very much for hanging out with us today. Thank you so very much for tuning in. For those of you that continue to like and share these messages with your circle of influence, thank you so very much for doing that. Continue to do that. And for those of you that continue to give online and you worship with us through generosity, you're meeting our new $10 challenge. Thank you so very much for doing that. That allows us to help more people, love more people, feed more people, and serve more people. Our next food pantry is coming up at the beginning of next month, and that will allow us to bless the community. Also, stay tuned right after my message for the awesome Water's Edge Band and a time of worship. Today we continue with our current series and this series is called The Investigation and today we move on with part three and anytime you investigate you have to do some digging and today this is what I want us to dig into. How do we know this Jesus thing is real and why do we actually follow him? Now today is going to be a bit more personal because when it comes down to it our God is real and our God is a personal God and when we follow Jesus, we have a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you have to understand that he is interested in and he is concerned about every single detail in your life. He's not just concerned about the big things. He's not just concerned about the big details, what's really important or what we think is really important. Jesus Christ, our personal God, is concerned about every single thing that you feel, every single thing that you experience, and every single thing that you go through. He's not just concerned about your soul. He's concerned about everything. Jesus is not just concerned about your soul, but he's also concerned about your emotions and your heart. He's not just concerned about your soul. He's also concerned about your relationships and your sadness and your loneliness and your fears and your anxieties. He's not just concerned about your soul. He's concerned about your struggles and your battles and your uncertainties. He's not just concerned about your soul, but he's also concerned about your joy and your happiness. He's concerned about it all. And when you investigate faith, one of the best places to start is personal and in your heart. Now, have you ever been invited to something and you wanted to say no? Or you said no right away because you didn't really want to go, you didn't really want to go hang out or anything like that, but you kind of felt obligated to? I tell people all the time, it's a joke, but I tell people all the time because I'm an introvert, Please don't invite me to something and cause me to make up a reason why I can't go. But sometimes you get invited to something and you really don't want to go, but maybe you feel obligated to go. And so you end up saying yes. And then afterwards, you end up having a great time. And so you're glad that you went. Afterwards, when you look back, you're glad that you accepted the invitation because something cool happened, something amazing happened. And maybe you're glad you didn't say no because you would have missed out on something really amazing or something really epic. I remember one time when when I was 18 years old, my dad asked me to ride with him to Oakdale and I didn't really want to hang out with my dad at 18 years old and I didn't want to ride all the way from De Quincey to Oakdale. There was nothing there that had my interest but my dad kept bugging me and he wouldn't tell me why we were going. He said, Tony, I just want you to keep me company. I want you to ride with me, ride with me to Oakdale and he made me feel obligated to go and he wouldn't stop so I finally said yes I will accept this invitation. I will ride with you, Dad. So we drive all the way from De Quincey to Oakdale, and when we get there, we drive into a car lot that one of his friends owned, and my dad had bought me a brand-new truck. After that, I was glad that I went. I was glad that I accepted the invitation because if I didn't, I would have missed out on something amazing and something epic. And guess what? We understand something when we hear stories like that, and this is what it is, and remember this today. Notice this today. You never know what hangs in the balance 
of an invitation. You never, ever know what hangs in the balance of an invitation. Now, let me remind you of something very, very important. The credibility of our faith does not rise and fall off of a book. The credibility of our faith does not rise and fall off of religion, off of tradition, even off of scriptures. But the credibility of our faith rises and falls off of one thing, and that's one individual. And that individual is Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So having said that, let me just say this. If you're considering coming back to the faith if you're considering uh, discovering the faith again or maybe discovering the faith, faith in Jesus for the very first time, or maybe you're considering leaving the faith. So right now, if you're leaning into the faith or maybe you're leaning back into the faith or maybe you're leaning out of the faith, here's a question that we should wrestle, wrestle with. And the question has never been that we need to wrestle with is this, is there a God or is God real? But the question that we need to deal with is this, and many times we've never been invited to ask this question, but in this series, we are invited to ask this question, and this is what it is, and notice this today. Are the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the four gospel accounts a reliable account of the actual life of Jesus? Because if they are, then Jesus is worth considering. In fact, even if they're just mostly reliable, then Jesus Christ is worth considering. Because remember, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all thought that this was worth telling. They all thought this was a story worth living for, worth writing down, worth telling, worth documenting, and many times they thought it was worth dying for. Now, we started this investigation off in the Gospel of Luke, and right away, Luke lets us know, the Dr. Luke lets us know that he is not writing religious literature. He had no idea that he was writing scripture. What he was writing down, he had no idea that one day it was going to be in a Bible. He was just writing down what they saw and what they heard. Notice this verse in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. The Dr. Luke is giving uh, his understanding. He's writing in a time, he's given his understanding of what they saw and what they heard. Actual events from actual eyewitnesses. We are living in this time that we're writing about. We're not writing about something that happened 200 years ago and we're trying to remember through the, through the grapevine and all those types of things. We're not writing about something that even happened 100 years ago. We're writing about something that we saw and that we heard with our very own eyes. And as he begins the story of Jesus, he writes this. And notice this today in Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him had spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues, and he was praised by everyone. Everywhere that he went, people loved him. People flocked to him. Crowds would gathered. The news was spreading. And that means this. The ministry of Jesus had such an impact on people. And this is why, and understand this today, the people that were the most unlike Jesus loved Jesus. Understand that. The people in the days of Jesus that were the most unlike Jesus, they were not turned away from Jesus. They loved Jesus and Jesus loved them. And also, the people in the days of Jesus that lived the most like Jesus 
hated Jesus and wanted him killed and crucified. And the same should be said about us, his followers, his church. The people that are most unlike Jesus should love our love, love our grace, love our service, love our mercy, and love the way we love the world. The Gospels tell us a story in the beginning when Jesus meets some of the disciples, when he meets Peter, that he gets invited to Peter's house. And as they're waiting for a meal, Peter was married, Peter had a mother-in-law who is sick. And so as they're waiting for this meal, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so the news starts spreading that Jesus Christ can actually heal people of sickness and disease. Notice this today in Luke chapter 4, verse 40. As the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought the sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. Now, Here's a question to think about. This is something that we should wrestle with today. Why did Jesus do and perform these healing miracles? And why did the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record down these healing miracles? Because let's be honest, let's just get real. These healing miracles do not make the story of Jesus easier to believe. Let's just be honest. When we read about some of these healing miracles, it makes the story of Jesus more difficult to believe, especially in our modern day culture. And, and Luke would say the same thing. I'm sure Luke was told, why do you keep writing these things down? It makes the story of Jesus very, very difficult to believe, to which Luke would say, I know it makes it difficult to believe, but that's just what happened. We're just writing down what we've seen and what we've heard. And the reason why we're documenting this and the reason why we talk about it and we can't stop talking about it is because it really happened. We know it makes it difficult to believe, but this is what happened. But we must understand that the reason was this. The most important part of the ministry of Jesus was not what he said or not what he taught. The most important part, the centerpiece of the ministry of Jesus was who he claimed to be. And way back then in the days of Jesus all the religious people that surrounded Jesus and people that loved Jesus they taught this that sickness was a result of sin if you have a disease if you get sick that was a result of sin now this was not the truth this was not the heart of God. This was not God's truth. But from the time they were children, they were taught that if you get sick, you must have sin in your life. And so God wants to get away from sinners. So these healings, when Jesus came along, these healings were visual illustrations to the religious leaders that Jesus Christ was God. Because Jesus Christ claimed to do something that infuriated the religious leaders. And this is what it was. Jesus claimed to have the power to forgive sin. They would say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are saying that you can forgive sin? Only God in heaven can forgive sin, and you have to go through our priesthood to get that forgiveness. And so when they taught that sin made you sick, and Jesus claimed to forgive sin, Jesus said, I'm going to give you a visual illustration that I have the power and the authority to forgive sin by healing people of their sickness. If you're going to hold on to this false belief that you have sickness in your life because of sin, then I'm going to heal sinners of their sicknesses. But also when Jesus would heal people of their sicknesses, it gave us a glimpse of the future 
when Jesus returns one day and he redeems all things and he resurrects all things and the scripture says in that moment in the future when he returns, there'll be no more sickness, no more disease. He will wipe away every tear. So when Jesus was here on earth, he gave us a glimpse of the future and how the future is going to be when he returns one day to resurrect everything. But it was also a visual illustration to all the religious leaders that Jesus Christ has power over sickness and he can forgive sin. Luke 4 verse 43, but Jesus replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns too, because that is why I was sent. Now, anytime you see that phrase, the kingdom of God, this is what it means. It means the rule of God's love or the authority of God's love, and the rule of God's love was always good news. Now, I have to say something. This is a side note. Many of us, you and I grew up in churches and the message of Jesus that was given to us did not sound like good news. So anytime you hear a story or a message about Jesus and it doesn't sound like good news, hopeful news, it's not the correct story. The good news of the kingdom is about the rule of God's love in our heart and in our lives. Notice this today. If you're still with me, Sam's still with you. Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 5. One day as Jesus was preaching on the shore of the Sea of Galilee at the water's edge, great crowds pressed in on him to listen to the word of God. He noticed two empty boats at the water's edge, for the fishermen had left them and they were washing their nets. Stepping into one of the boats, Jesus asked Simon Peter, its owner, to push out into the water. And so he sat in the boat and he taught the crowds from there. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, Now go out where it's deeper, let down your nets to catch some fish. Master, Simon replied, we have worked hard all night and we didn't catch a thing. But notice this. But if you say so, if you say so, I will let down the nets again. Notice this when it says that Jesus was teaching the word, wasn't talking about scripture or the Bible. That wasn't complete yet. It was talking about the very words of Jesus. But notice what Peter says, because you say so, if you say so, I'm going to put this faith into action and I will let down the nets again. That statement changed Simon Peter's life. That statement changed my life, and that statement can change your life too. So that leads us to this question, and notice this question today. What decision do you know you need to make in your heart right now? Because deep down you know God wants you to. And he has been calling you to do this. He has been leading you to do this. Jesus was not asking Peter and the other disciples to believe something. He was asking them to do something. Listen to his words, push out into the deep waters, and let down your nets again. And Peter did not know what was going to happen with this invitation, but you never know what hangs in the balance of an invitation. All he knew was he was going to take a step and obey the voice of Jesus. We move on, Luke chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And this time their nets were so full of fish, they began to tear. They'd been fishing all night. Didn't catch anything. This time, Jesus says, let's go out and let's do it again. They catch so much, their nets break. A shout for help brought their partners in the other boat, and soon both boats were filled with fish on the verge of sinking. They caught so many fish. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, Oh, Lord. He didn't say, Oh, Master. Not anymore. Now he says, Oh, Lord. Now notice this. Please leave me. For I'm a sinful man. Notice that statement. Please leave me. 
for I'm a sinful man. Now notice a few things. It says at this time, which means they did something. At this time, they took action. They didn't just believe something, they did something. So notice the next observation, and this is what it is. Following Jesus is an active faith. Again, what is God calling you to do? What has he been leading you to do? What decision, what choice, what step, what move that you know you've been needing to make in your life? Try it. Take that step. Put your faith in the action because our faith is an active faith. Now back to the story. In this scene, on this boat fishing, they catch so many fish, their nets break, their nets tear, and then suddenly they realize he does not just forgive people. He doesn't just heal people. He's God. Even creation obeys him. He must be God. He must be who he claims to be, the Son of God. Even creation bow downs under the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important. Peter said, Jesus, you must be God. I'm a sinner, so I assume you have to get away from me. I assume God must distance himself from sinful people just like me. Peter assumed because of his bad religion and the bad false teachings he had been given that God must get away from sinful people. I got to be honest with you. I used to feel the same way because of bad religion. I thought that everything I dealt with, everything I struggled with, everything that had me in bondage, Every weakness in my life made me unworthy for God and that God wanted to have nothing to do with me. I was convinced that God wanted to have nothing to do with me and some of you have felt the same way. But this is one of the parts of the story that really changed my heart and changed my life. And it changed the early disciples' life because they understood when this happened that Jesus as God does not run away from sinners but he draws close. Way back in the days of Jesus, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish community had three different stages of education. And once they finished the third stage, these young teenagers would go on and try to be disciples of rabbis. And this is what they would do. They would find a rabbi that they loved, that they looked up to, that they really loved their teachings. And they would tell that rabbi, I'm going to prove myself to you. I want to be one of your disciples. I'm going to work hard to show you that I'm worthy to be one of your disciples. And so that's what they would do. And if that rabbi thought that these young teenagers were good enough to be their disciple, they would tell them, follow me. At that time, they would leave everything behind in their life, their job, their career, their family, their relationships. They would leave everything behind and follow that rabbi and try to be just like that rabbi. Pray like that rabbi prays, believe what that rabbi believes, teach how that rabbi teaches, worship how that rabbi worships, live how that rabbi lives. They would leave everything behind and do that because their dream was to become a disciple of a rabbi. We dream about being rock stars and movie stars and all that kind of good stuff and we grow up or whatever being rich and successful back then they all wanted to grow up and be disciples of a rabbi that's when you knew you were something in this life but if these young teenagers didn't have what it takes the rabbis would say go home you don't have what it takes you're not good enough go home and learn your family trade or go back to your old job now here's the question what were the disciples doing the first time Jesus met them they were fishing with their fathers working their family trade or working other jobs like collecting taxes or being zealots, freedom fighters. And that meant this. 
The disciples that Jesus chose to follow him as a rabbi were the losers of society, the not good enoughs, the JV team. They had all been told, go home and learn your family trade. You're not good enough. And so when Jesus comes along and says, I see something in you, I believe in you. I want you to know that you're not a loser. I want you to know you're not too sinful for me. You're not too messed up for me. You're not too weak for me. I don't see you as a not good enough. I don't see you as too weak. I don't see you as a loser. I see you as someone who I can change their heart and I can use you to change the world. And they all followed Jesus immediately. Jesus has no desire to run away from sinners like we all are. No, Jesus got closer. He gets closer to you. You and I when we're struggling. He gets closer to you and I when we're hurting. He gets closer to you and I when we're weak. He doesn't run away. God's not looking for the popular. He's looking for the available, whether you feel like you deserve it or not. He's not looking for the talented. He's not looking for the successful. He's not looking for the religious. He's not looking for the strong. He's just looking for the available. People to say, yes, I will drop my nets on the other side of the boat. People who will say, yes, whether you feel like you deserve it or not. These are the people that God uses uses to make a difference. Now, understand this today. God does not distance himself from broken people. He does not distance himself from you and I. He comes near to us when we need him the most. We move on in the book of Luke chapter 5 verses 9 through 11. You're still with me. Sam's still with you. For he was awestruck, Peter was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were so amazed. Jesus replied, Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. As soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. Fishing for people. What does that mean? It meant this. Now that you've experienced the good news of the kingdom, now that you have felt the love of God, don't you know that other people who've been made to feel not good enough, they need to experience the love of God too? So go and tell them, go and show them the love of God and fish for hurting people. And then they leave everything else behind and they follow Jesus. This rabbi actually believes in us. He actually believes we can do this. He does not see us as losers. He does not see us as too broken, too messed up, and too weak. We're going to leave everything else behind and follow him. And honestly, you would have done the same thing. But let me tell you something and look right here. Jesus has done so much more than that for you. He did more than a fish trick for you. Later on in Peter's life, this is how he described what Jesus Christ did for him, the other disciples, for me, for you, and for the entire world. Notice how he explained it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Jesus never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted. He did not threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can live dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds on the cross, we are healed. By his wounds on the cross, our souls can be healed. Our emotions can be healed. Our mind can be healed. Our relationships can be healed. Our battles can be healed. Our past can be healed. 
Our fears can be healed. Our spirits can be healed. By the wounds of Jesus on the cross, we can be healed. Notice what Jesus Christ has already done for you. He died on the cross for you and for me. He allowed himself to be insulted for you and for me. He allowed himself to be arrested, embarrassed, tortured, humiliated, put on trial, nailed to wood for you and for me. That's what he did for you and I. The pain of the cross and the agony of the cross, he did this for us. And that's why he's worth it. Not for what he will do one day, but for what he has already done. I tell people all the time, I don't love Jesus because of what I'm expecting him to do in the future. I love Jesus because when I look at the cross, I understand that if he never does a good thing for me, he's already done enough. The cross shows us that Jesus Christ has already done enough. And this is why we follow him. And this is why we love him. God does not run away from broken people. He gets closer. He calls us into an active faith, and that is showing the love of God to other people in this broken world. Thank you so very much for hanging out with us today. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Stay tuned for some worship right after this message. We hope you have a wonderful week. We love you all.